I think as budding law students, you can't put all of your eggs in the, in the legal basket. And you have to think about law as a narrative. Law is a great way to tell a story. You know, anything opposite that, that caption, you know, Romero versus Gonzalez, right? You have, a, you have two sides. You crystallize the issues. You, if you find a way to tell a story about a client or an issue, you make it come alive. It's the perfect way to engender a public debate. And if you think about that, not just in the context of, you know, shepherdizing the cases or, or finding the right uh, legal arguments, but you actually think about them and how do I make this issue come alive? That's often the best way that you can do it. We have a number of cases where we have purposely shaped very good lawsuits in ways that will create a public debate. One example, uh, undocumented immigrants. I'm going to move to immigration reform to Elena. Uh, it's really hard to get anyone to really care about undocumented immigrants in this country right now. A bunch of us do, but not the majority of the country. There were a number of cases where we've, we've come across where immigrants died in detention centers and there's been a cover-up by the government. We got that information out using the Freedom of Information Act by the government. The government lies, hate to tell it to you, does. You have to probe at it, you have to question all authority, you have to pull the details out. And we were told that there was not a significant number of immigrants who died in detention centers. We didn't believe it. We sued. We got the documents under FOIA. FOIA is, is democracy's x-ray. It's the only way to know whether what's happening in government is truly happening in government. Then we saw that the numbers were much higher. Then we began to focus on immigrant detention centers and seeing the conditions. We found one in Texas that was especially bad. It was a medium security prison that was turned into a detention center for families. And we thought, how, do you, how are we going to challenge this? The families, they, they, the kids were wearing prison garb. They weren't allowed to put uh, writing utensils in their cells. They had no toys. When they would act up, they would threaten to separate the parents from the children. They had no access to education. They had no access to, to medical, information, medical assistance. The parents were undocumented. The kids were often were all U.S. citizens. And they were, the parents were alleging good cases on either refugee or asylum status. And they were sitting there while their cases were being, winding their way through a very long court system. We sued, and our plaintiffs were the kids. American citizens, really bright and smiley faces, same legal arguments you would have made for the parents, but so much more compelling. And for me, immigration reform is an essential part of expanding rights in America. We, we should be, and we have been, about allowing people to assume a greater responsibility and greater set of rights in America. It's a pathway to rights. And for me, immigration reform is an essential part of that ever-expanding equation on what, what we are as a society. And as a nation of immigrants, and with the fact that they play such an important role in our economies and our, in, our, in our country right now, and, and the fact that immigrants are the largest, fastest growing population in prisons because we're locking them away while we don't have a way for them to become a part of the, uh, the body politic, it, I think it is an essential part of, of what we need to do. Whether, we'll, whether this president will get it done is, is another question. Um, we'll see if we get to that one. Um, on the legal issues. Uh, to Benjamin's point about the obligation to a client, 
and yet having a constituency. When you represent a client, you represent a client. That's, that's that someone retains you to defend their interests. And you may not like your client. Many of our clients I despise, frankly. Uh, um, Fred Phelps, you know, the fellow who's organizing these protests at, mil at military funerals because the reason why men and women in uniform are dying is because we give, we've given rights to gay and lesbian people like me. He's organizing protests on public property. The governments, local governments, are trying to shut down those protests. We don't believe that any government should shut down any protest. We have a responsibility to that client, but to a broader constituency, our job as lawyers is to make them understand why the principles we undertake are important. I even think there's a teachable moment for America when the ACLU explains why does the gay head of the ACLU believe that Fred Phelps has a right to protest in America at these military funerals on public space. And I think that the balancing the responsibility to the client and their interests and you understanding that there is a broader constituency and sometimes you have to step back and help explain that differently, I think it often helps resolve the tension. But at the end of the day, if there's a tension between the public and the client and you represent a client, the client trumps. That's, that's what the legal system and you, that's what your bar license requires of you. Um, the question on fewer, federal, fewer civil cases and the role of the judiciary as a, as a neutral body, whether that's being blurred, right? That was uh, Madeline's question. Where's Madeline? Yeah. I think you're seeing fewer civil cases partly because of the expense and the difficulty of getting anything done in the courts. There's a huge backlog. There are a lot of vacancies. It's increasingly expensive. I'm less troubled when you have retired judges who serve as arbitrators or, or as, as mediators. I've seen a couple of cases where a judge will really strong arm the parties into settling. And that is very problematic. Uh, we've had a couple of cases where a judge will want us to settle out with our opposing counsel. And yet part of what we want to do is put on the facts, put on the trial, get the information out there. And that's often where I think you see more of a rub. It's less so about the judges uh, playing an inappropriate role. It's more often, I think, the retired judges or people who have been uh, selected from a panel of mediators or arbitrators. I, I think litigation should be a last resort. If you, can, if you can stop a bad bill from passing, that's great. If you can, if you can settle out your differences uh, before you file a lawsuit, if you file a lawsuit and then get them to come to their knees and then repeal some of these efforts, terrific. I think you only go to a full trial or full litigation only when, when pushed as a last resort. I'll switch now to the, some of the policy issues. The 5-4 split, Sarah's question. This court is losing, where's Sarah? I'm trying to remember. Okay. It is losing legitimacy. They know it. They were politely demurring. Justice Ginsburg was the one who tried to point to it in a very uh, polite way. You have to understand, this court is very polite with each other, as they must be. They have uh, vastly different ideologies, and they squabble bitterly on it. Justice Souter resigned in complete and utter disgust at this court. This man was someone who just said, I had it, I'm out of here. And I think that the advice he was giving to Justice Sotomayor about remember that your colleagues are as uh, earnest in their sentiments as you are in yours is a way of trying to get through the fact that it's 
politically divided. And you look at the Citizens United case and you read, this is the campaign finance case, it's the prime example of judicial activism with, this, with the majority of the court. They overreached in such a way. I happen to believe that they came out at the right conclusion. I know that might be controversial here. But the way they got to it was so much more aggressive and assertive than they needed to. And when you read Justice Stevens' dissent where he says the only thing that has changed since the last time this court considered this issue is the composition of the court. Whew. I mean, that's, that's pretty heavy uh, from a Supreme Court justice writing in a formal opinion, speaking about his other colleagues. And I think that they do run the risk, especially as some of these issues come up. Um, I think actually the campaign finance issue is probably among the among the most controversial, but not the one that's going to really undercut their legitimacy. I think actually the Second Amendment cases, the right to bear arms cases, which are so, now there's a question about whether or not the states can be uh, banned from passing gun control laws. Uh, and there, there are a number of others that will really go to the heart of our social fabric that, have a that run the risk of undercutting the court's legitimacy. On the question of uh, individualism and mutual obligations and the tension of whether or not you focus on individual rights. Where's Amanda? Amanda's here. I want to make eye contact when I answer your questions. It's, it's, not, it's not an either or, I think. I mean, I actually think that what makes the body politic work is a concern for the rights of each individual and that we are stronger as a collective when we concern ourselves with the right of every person. I mean, it's what Jacqueline was saying before in her work. It's, it's that the collective dignity of us as a society stems from our individual concern for every person. And I think that often that plays out in places where it's easy to talk about uh, social welfare and, and when you concern yourself with certain groups. It's much harder when you talk about pariah groups, when you talk about groups that you really don't want to uh, bring into the fold, like the rights of the Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois. Now, is that an individual right or is that a collective right? For me, that's the, about the collective right for anyone to express themselves, uh, even in hateful ways. And I think that often, for us, uh, where we draw the line from other libertarian groups is that we believe there is a role for government. There is a role for government to legislate for good. There's a role for government to desegregate the schools. There's a role for government to help the poor. Whereas if you look at the Federalist Society or the other the American Enterprise Institute, they question the role of the government. We often sue the government to force the government to take action. That's the difference between, I think, our libertarian organization, which is left of center, some would say, than a right of, right of center libertarian group that doesn't want to see the role of government in almost any instance. Uh, so now we'll turn to policy questions. I, I promise you I can get this done. I've got three minutes, right? Um, <laughs> Police accountability, small and local groups, Yassam's question. The most important thing about civil liberties and civil rights and human rights is that that's a, where's Yassam, I'm trying to locate her. Yeah, okay. The most important thing is that these are, these, these are products that have to be delivered locally. You can't shoot in and out of Washington and New York into Odessa, Texas, where they're trying to teach the Bible in a public school because you have to be on the ground in those places. And that's where the network of small and local community groups really is so key. 
And that's why in the vision of the ACLU, we have, we have 900 full-time employees at, at my organization. 300 of them are with me in the headquarters here in Washington and New York. 600 are in the States. Because we believe that the ground troops for civil liberties have to be on the front lines. And that's where I think, especially on questions that deal with police accountability, when a cop beats up someone on, on the subway line or on, uh, on the back street in, in uh, Pensacola, Florida, where I was about three, week, three weeks ago, they're not going to call an organization sitting in lower Manhattan. They're going to call their local ACLU office in Pensacola. And I think that's part of the, the power of our organizations, being able to meet the abuse of power both at the state, at the local level, at the state, and at the federal level. Uh, you, you need those small groups to be partners with you, to be the eyes and ears on the ground. On the other uh, set of policy issues, the, the patents and tech, look, we've been trying to keep the, the net open and, and unrestricted from the beginning. We've always understood that was the, the, uh, the, the way to go. We've had a number of very controversial cases that deal with child pornography on the, on the web. <coughs> Uh, the Child Decency Act, we challenged and won. The Child Online Protection Act, we challenged and won. The questions of these uh, fair and, and uh, neutral spaces where you, you allow any and all speech on the web is increasingly difficult when there are n some members, including a member of Congress, I have to go see this afternoon, who see the web as a tool for terrorism or for evil. And so it's not just the patenting of, of news provision. I think it's, and that is some, that is, that is with government sanction. It's, a, it's the fact that the government patent office has allowed and has provided patents in places where it ought not to. But it's also a, an increasing restriction from the governments themselves. And ironically, you read about what's going on in Google and China, and yet I have to go brief a member of Congress who would like to shut down difficult, aggressive uh, Muslim extremist websites and I'll, I'm going to say to this congresswoman, look, what's, look at the difference. It's speech is speech. You have to focus on conduct. And just because I go on, a, uh, on an extremist jihadi website doesn't make me an extremist. I may want to understand what they're saying or what they're thinking. And the minute we close down that space, I think, Joe, Cody, it's, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very challenging uh, environment. To the gene patenting issue, this is one that's interesting. One company in California has, has bought, essentially has patented and owns two genes that are essential to, to the formation of breast cancer. So anytime you want to find out if you have a genetic predisposition for breast cancer, and your doctor is going to try to see if you have a genetic predisposition to breast cancer, your doctor, your oncologist, the pharmaceutical companies, researchers have to pay royalties to this company in California. The cost of getting this, uh, this breast cancer test is much higher in America than in Europe because in Europe they don't enforce that patent. They think it's BS. In America, under the Bush years, we granted patents to things that exist in human nature. And so women on Medicare cannot afford this very expensive test. Uh, researchers are discouraged from doing research on these issues because of the, the cost of paying royalties to another company. So we've brought a lawsuit, which is the first of its kind, that, that Karen has been tracking and doing some writing on, on behalf of a very broad swath of, of, of individuals, uh, two, Nobel priests, uh, two Nobel winners who are researchers in, in the sciences, the American Medical Association, the American Oncological Association, 
And then individual plaintiffs. We have one fantastic plaintiff, a, a widower, whose wife died of breast cancer. He retained a part of her tissue. He's got three little daughters. And Myriad, he can afford the test, but Myriad only has the tests for six different mutations that show a propensity for breast cancer. There could be as many as a dozen or two dozen. One doesn't know. And yet they won't allow him and his doctor to figure out if other mutated genes have a propensity for breast cancer, putting his little girls at risk. That's a case we filed in the Second Circuit. We had the argument in January. Did you go? Mm -hmm. I was out of town. Um, and we're waiting for the opinion. It should be rather remarkable. 